Hello, Down to Brown family. It is I, Lahari Rao, your host and chief Down to Brown officer. Try to make that happen. Sorry, LinkedIn. As you know from our Instagram, I've been taking a step back to be more intentional about what I put out and what we give a platform to in Down to Brown. I think a lot of us are considering the value social media exactly has and what we want to make of it. Given that this is something that I've been working through the past few months, you may see a shift in some of the topics, how often we do this. You get it. For example, our South Asian community is really building momentum on social media, and I am here for it. It is such a win, such progress for our community where we rarely saw ourselves in proud, authentic, like you do you moments. Something I have noticed too, though, is that we really have a lot of representation of fashion and like makeup, beauty, food, lifestyle, actors, actresses, and like, why not? These are super, super fun and could not live without all of them. But as I think about what Down to Brown uniquely offers, and I really want to think about what is our special edge or our raison d'etre. Oh my God, I am so bad at the French accent. Um, But our reason for being is what I tried to say. Um, I want to think about being a space that acknowledges all of the things that I just mentioned, but focusing on one thing in particular. How can we use compassion, being a keyword, compassion, to find wisdom, self-awareness, forgiveness for the things that once made us angry, alone, frustrated, and unaware? Like what I want more than anything else in my life personally and for this community if you are on board, is that we are able to find peace and happiness in who we are. I I think that when we can do that, we're good to ourselves. We're good to the people in our lives. We can help our community and we can be strong champions to our sister communities. It just feels like a better time on this earth. I get very spiritual, my apologies, but bringing it back. That being said, sex is one of these topics. And when it comes to sex, there is a wide range of possibilities on how we could approach this. This episode was dictated by the guest that I interviewed, who I was introduced to by my best friend and practically sister, Jolly Singh. Shout out. She was a bridesmaid at my wedding. And oh my God, is she always changing my life? But she sends me this Instagram account, Fat Sex Therapist, held by none other than Sonali Rashidwar. I was smitten immediately. It was, and if you look at this account, you'll see by the posts and the text that's represented, it's this unapologetic, truthful representation of how our sexuality, gender, our fat phobias, our psychology, all of that manifests into our relationship with sex like if you think about it growing up did you even have enough education discussion benchmarks teachings open dialogue at home about sex let alone the thought of sex therapy 
I sure as hell didn't, so I'll speak to myself, but now I just might even look into it. I think the lack of education and awareness and understanding and compassion for ourselves as women when it comes to sex is really universal. I I really truly believe this is not something that is unique to one culture only. Um, We are confused by how much we want it, like how much we even care for it who we want to do that with, how we want to, why we want to, I could go on and you probably can think of quite a few others. Now, if you add the South Asian factor, we have a lot of cyclical messages and traumas, religious and cultural things that we've heard, the good old notorious patriarchy, all of this to just befuddle us even more. So this episode, I wanted to talk to Sonali about their wisdom and expertise on the deeper psychology and social phenomena that basically informs our relationship with our body, sex, and gender. In this episode, Sonali and I are vulnerable. I ask that if you're someone who thinks that they're uncomfortable with this topic or that you even kind of feel like, hey, you know, I don't know how much I feel secure about this topic. I might even be a little judgmental. Like I I ask, please, I love you. And this might not be the right episode to get into. I invite those who are curious to learn with an open heart and are hoping to connect to others to listen. And I really can't thank the people enough on Instagram, on our Down to Brown Instagram, who submitted questions. And so instead of the trip to Brown, actually this time I did um, an, like an audience Q&A, if you will, with the submitted questions so that we could make this as valuable for you as possible. And also, if you like this episode, like, let me know. I'm happy to keep doing these because I'm seriously such a student when it comes to my sexual and like gender and body journey. We can do like more episodes that are more around why are we the way that we are um we can do spicy episodes you know talk about kind of like juicy stuff when it comes to sex and like some of those stories and whoever's comfortable talking about that as you know I'm an open book and um we could also just do an episode full of Q&A of questions you have about it and Sonali said they are open to coming back anytime to Down to Brown so you just let me know boo that being said, let's meet Sonali. And this is straight from their website. So Sonali Rajathwar is an award-winning clinical social worker, sex therapist, adjunct lecturer, and grassroots organizer. Um, this part isn't in the website, but holy shit, can you imagine just being able to do all that awesomeness? Back to description. They are based in Philadelphia, and they are a super fat queer, bisexual, non-binary therapist, and co-owner of Radical Therapy Center, which specializes in treating sexual trauma, diet trauma, racial or immigrant trauma, and South Asian family abuse while offering fat-positive sexual health care. It is not mentioned here, but they also do a really great job helping us understand colonization and how that has basically influenced our minds and I don't mean colonization based on just like the physical aspect but mentally what does a physical occupation like that do to you mentally and the mental occupation that takes over you um so it's it's really fascinating to me I really hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did Sonali is truly such a kind patient 
compassionate, loving, and wise person who connects all of that empathy into helping others. And I'm so grateful for people like them. So let's go and meet Sonali. Everyone, I am so excited to have Sonali Rashathwar here. Everyone was so excited to have you on, by the way. I posted on Down to Browner Instagram and usually people are like, oh, we're excited. But this time they, they were like, oh my gosh, I have questions. They submitted, they DM'd. And so I really appreciate you making this space for us because we are very hungry for information, clearly. I'm so honored. You know, however, the... The information has to come out. Um, I think that's awesome that these are some of the creative ways that we are finding space for ourselves. Totally. I hope so. So let's jump right in. I know you're a busy person. So let's start sure. with fat phobia. So we're seeing a movement of body acceptance, which I think is a work in progress. It's by no means, you know, I think we've made it or, not, or anything. But it seems like it is still a stigmatized situation. So I think about even just in mainstream, how we talk about like one of the shows that my sister and I started watching to bond over sisterhood was a thousand pound sisters. And over time we thought, Hey, this is actually kind of a sick concept, the way that they portray it. It's really not a healthy way. Um, I thought we thought it was about to like about these sisters and like their stories as they like bond over this, but it wasn't, it was very much fitting into mainstream society. Um, and I think people get kind of a sick fascination with that too. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of mm -hmm. curious, like in your experience, and especially since your work focus on, uh, focuses on this, how can we unlearn the messages we've heard about fatness? Much of the long work of deprogramming the way that we internalize fat phobia, fat phobia is really this concept that uh, the smaller we are, the more that we try to become smaller in body size, the more worthy we can, we can become. Mm -hmm. That I am unworthy of my current size, I'll be more worthy, more pure, more loved or desired if I'm a little bit, if I'm smaller in any way. Yeah. So this concept of fat phobia uh, really has to be deprogrammed. And I understand how body positivity as a movement feels like it is uh, reaching its goals because you know maybe we we know the the word maybe it's a hashtag that's used pretty commonly maybe it's like even a a household phrase um, but body positivity as it was started was supposed to center the most marginalized the fattest of us black and brown folks indigenous folks disabled folks but what we see on Instagram is really this colonization of body positivity we really see white folks who are in pretty normative bodies, pretty conventionally attractive bodies, uh, really taking over, taking the stage uh, of what should be folks who, who would be featured in the show, A Thousand Pound Sisters. Yeah. And shows like that really exist um, to demean and degrade fat people. Shows like um, Biggest Loser, uh, as well as, um, there's another one, uh, My 600 Pound Life, um, a lot of reality TV really relies on these really old tropes um, of like sideshow circus characters, like mm -hmm. look at the service, look at the freak show, um, laugh at people whose lives are like worse than ours. Right. Um, and shows like that really exist to prop up the system of fat phobia, that larger people are lazy, fatter people are stupid. 
um, worthy of mockery, worthy of uh, degradation and dehumanization. So to unlearn those messages, we really have to plant within ourselves the opposite. We have to actually watch shows about fat folks and movies about fat folks that are humanizing. So I think about, um, I think about shows that feature folks like um, Queen Latifah or Monique or, or I'm thinking of um, the comic, Nicole Byer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of like finding more, whether it's fiction, fiction, whether it is animated, more roles and opportunities for us to see fat folks as people who could be our friend, our family member, our partner, our neighbor. Unlearning fat phobia doesn't just relate to like how we can humanize fictional characters on a screen or in a book. It also relates to the people in our real life. So, you know, do you have fat friends? How do you treat them? (laughs) Have you ever had fat partners? You know, if not, why not? If you've never had close fat friends, why not? Um, If you, if you find yourself not really wanting to relate to fat people, fat family members, fat relatives, um, why could that be? A lot of the times it relies on it requires us to undo some of the ways that we have been taught to think of fat people as less trustworthy, um, less forthcoming, less honest, less hardworking. Um, and it really requires us to undo that messaging. Right. It's actually incredible. And I use it in a sort of ironic way, how much we've like spent time internalizing those messages and probably don't even realize Right. And I think it's um, unfortunate that we even have to say, like, you know, do you do you have friends like that? And like, it just sounds so simple and obvious, like, why shouldn't you? But the fact that these biases do come up, do you think it's like, where do you think it begins? You know, I imagine like as especially children, like we tend to not think about people that way. And somewhere along the way, like we start to hear these messages and maybe start to really take them into consideration. And I wonder sometimes if it's more about the discomfort you have within you and it's less about the person. Um, Mm. But I'm I'm definitely curious as an expert opinion, um, how, where you see this sort of like pick up at like, what age do we literally start to become worse people like as a society? Mm. Yeah, we we start to see uh, children share their anti-Black, homophobic, transphobic opinions of their parents and caregivers at a really young age, like starting around age six to eight. And mm. that's often when I also hear the ways that young kids will pick up fat phobia from caregivers and parents as well. The way that we relate to our peers often is informed by our family of origin. Those are the people where all of our attachments, right, started. Those are the, that's the core group of people where we learn about how to relate to the rest of the entire world. All of the relationships we will ever have for the rest of our life are informed by the ways that we were taught to relate to others within that family of origin. 
Yeah, that makes total sense. It's a, when you hear kids, especially repeat stuff like that, even sometimes very problematic things about groups, you wonder how the parents are talking at home, right? Cause they're seeing it from someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't even know if they know what they're saying. So what I was going to lead up to was, you know, I was recently reading this book, um, the aesthetic brain by Anjan Chatterjee mm-hmm. and evolutionary psychology is fascinating in general, but in that they talk about, you know, what we find beautiful tends to be an indicator of the society we live. So if you live in a society where food and resources are scarce, we tend to appreciate fuller bodied women in particular, they were talking about. And then in the opposite of societies, they tend to value slimmer women. You know, I was kind of thinking like, oh, maybe that's why like in America, we tend to really put this emphasis um, on a type of beauty that tends to be very Eurocentric, Euro bodies. Um, And unfortunately, the mainstream is dominated by the Western society, which is doing pretty well. Um, So I'm curious, like in your opinion, like if someone was like, hey, isn't this like an evolutionary thing though? Um, What does that have to do with, like, I I feel like there's an overlap here with colonization. How would you address that connection and help someone understand that it's not necessarily like, this is an evolutionary thing that, that we can justify this behavior? Yeah, that's my gripe with evolutionary psychology is that it really... Uh, feels like white supremacist science. It really feels like race science um, mm. of the 18, 1800s. Um, yeah. Folks trying to come up with reasons why anti-blackness is justified or fat phobia is justified or white supremacy is justified. Right. And I just think it's a little too convenient. Like when we are saying that it's okay for Nazis to like the things that Nazis like. Yeah. <laughs> That's literally what I hear when someone tells me that evolutionary psychology says that there is like an algorithm or an arithmetic around what we find beautiful. I think that that's bullshit. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. I've never thought about it that way, but you're right. Like even something as small as like, when we look at paintings of beautiful women, um, when you look at Cleopatra's paintings or, um, even South Asian women, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of not, um, asymmetry in the beauty, Mm -hmm. but we are taught that like in evolutionary psychology, symmetry is what's beautiful. Um, and that tends to be much more, again, like I have never thought about how that aligns more with white beauty. Mm-hmm. So um, thank you for blowing my mind already. It's only been a few minutes, <laughs> but I, I'm leading up to also the fact like, you know, when these relationships with our comfort levels and, you know, our biases around fat phobia and fatness come into play with relationships as well. And in particular sex. And so I'm curious, like where you find this show up, like, especially since you also overlap in this expertise too, what does fatness have to do with sex and our relationship with sex? It has everything to do with sex. Um, When I think about growing up as a person of a marginalized gender, um, as a a non-assist man, um, I grew up learning really early how to be desirable. Um, And this is one of the ways that we are taught how to be controlled by cis heteropatriarchy. Um, when I think about sex, I think about um, the value of being sexually desirable and how the, the goalpost of who is considered sexually desirable is always moving and how that's intentionally designed so that power can be centralized um, by those who have it. Mm-hmm. So when I think about what this has to do with that sex, um, I think about how fat phobia is one of the ways that uh, thinness becomes a white supremacist beauty ideal. I think about how thinness is praised 
even within Brahminical patriarchy. Um, I think about how uh, Brahminical patriarchy, Brahminism predated white supremacy. And in fact, that white supremacists look to Aryanism, look to Brahmin supremacy for a lot of their iconography, <laughs> for a lot of their ideas. Um, you know, not, the Nazis didn't come up with it. Originally, they were looking at Jim Crow South. They were looking at the way the US was segregated, uh, white supremacy within the US and the way that caste supremacy really centralized power within India. Um, these ideas really are linked um, into how sexual desirability, meaning teaching people that they have to earn love, earn pleasure, earn respect, earn worthiness by controlling and shrinking their bodies really makes them preoccupied, really disconnects them from their own intuitive voice and their own agency and body autonomy and really convinces us that we have to live our lives for someone else instead of thinking about ourselves first. That is so powerful. And I'm sad to report how many people reached out to me about those types of insecurities when it came to questions about this episode. Mm -hmm. But you also uh, did a secondary blow my mind where I have to wonder, did we start this? Did South Asians start this? This whole time, right? We talk mm -hmm. about white supremacy mm -hmm. and we think it's white people. But now hearing you talk, you're totally right about the mm -hmm. values that we've also talked about in these ancient original civilizations. Mm -hmm. um, when you brought up the caste and Brahmin piece, did we start this? Uh, when it comes to how power has been solidified, I mean, there have been different axes of supremacies that exist in different areas of the globe. And there have for a long time. Yeah. But when it comes to the way that we understand white supremacy here in the US and how it has branched from Western European white supremacy, um, I don't know if Brahmins invented it, but it is hard to argue the, the strong influences of Aryanism in South Asia and Nazism in Germany and the way that white fascists exist today here in the US. It's hard to argue. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, thank you for that perspective. And when we come to, especially like as I was talking about people's questions from um, listeners, you know, one of the big questions we had is when did sex sort of become quote, quote, <laughs> taboo? in Desi culture. And I know this isn't something that's exclusive. I think there are different challenges of comfort with sex. I, you know, I'm reading a book about, you know, come as you are by a white woman mm. um, and about, you know, American women. And so I, I understand that this is a universal thing, um, but especially coming from South Asian culture, you see that we've had some things like just in, embedded in our culture, the Kama Sutra, the temples with lovers who are, how, when did we become anti and um, secretive and awkward about it? Oh, I don't know um, a whole lot about, about the history of colonization within the Indus Valley, within South Asia, but um, I do know a lot of fascism, a lot of like the ways that uh, Brahminical supremacy um, co-opted, colonized, stole, iconography, ideas, beliefs, and values from the indigenous people. I know that a lot of what Brahmanism uh, does today is what I described, you know, a few sentences earlier and thinking about how 
when we teach a whole group of people that they do not get to own their own orgasmic power, mm -hmm. they don't get to own their ability to make themselves orgasm. Um, they don't get to own their own sexuality. Their sexuality exists to please others. It exists to, um, to pass down culture, to pass down tradition, to create a new generation, right? It, it exists for like biological function primarily, or it exists um, for someone else's purpose, some larger cultural biological purpose and not our own frivolous, I just wanna masturbate because I had a bad day on a Tuesday afternoon, yeah. um, right? Like when we teach a whole group of people that their orgasmic power is not their own, we are, we create a whole class of people who can be controlled. And then within caste supremacy, within Brahmanism, um, there is a hierarchy of who can be considered pure. Those yeah. at the top, those who are the Brahmins, those who are lightest skin, those who have straight thick hair and, and light skin and thin noses and quote unquote good skin and uh, who act um, piously and who act with purity and who wield that purity as a weapon over others, uh, those are the ones who get rewarded. Yeah, I find that um, almost not because what you said, but just that concept really triggering because typically then when we talk about pious and purity, all of these apply to women, right? Like not mm. um, men in those cultures. And so a lot of this, I think like also that piece of just even finding the orgasm, something that we are entitled to, that we have a right to experience, mm -hmm. that it's not optional, was such a foreign concept. I did not even know you could do that personally. I had sex when I was 18 with my boyfriend in college. And two years later, I was aware that you could do something like that, the concept of touching yourself. And I remember kind of like freaking out and doing it quietly. Like when everyone was asleep, I was visiting my parents. I'm really hoping mm -hmm. they don't listen to this episode. But um, and so I remember being like, what the, what, this can happen? And you don't right. need anyone else? So mm -hmm. I was blown away. And similarly, one, uh, someone had a question and I'll read you the exact quote because it touched on what you were saying. When I was younger, honestly, just tapping into my sexual side was so hard because it felt like that side shouldn't exist, especially being a woman and a brown woman. For the longest time, I just believed that it was something I had to do for the man to keep the man happy. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more about how we can embrace and tap into our sexual side as brown women. Mm. I feel like the biggest way is like owning it for ourselves. So that means taking nudes just for yourself, giving yourself compliments while you're getting dressed in the mirror after a shower, um, saying wonderful things to yourself while you're lathering up and um, adorning yourself with scents that smell so good to you. Like, do you adore yourself the way that you adore a lover? Do you speak to yourself the way that you speak to a lover? Do you touch yourself the way that you touch a lover, right? Tenderly, very exquisitely. This really starts with the way that we treat ourselves when no one else is around. 
you know, how do you take photos of yourself and just adore yourself? Um, how do you set time aside just for yourself to cook a lavish meal that only you get to enjoy? That took you like a whole hour to, to chop each little vegetable and herb and like put together for yourself. Embracing our own sexual side doesn't just mean the, the act of sex, whether it be yeah. penetrative or not, right? Sexuality involves so many things, like the way that we enter a boardroom asking for a raise with confidence. Like this is the space of the erotic. Audre Lorde talks about uses of the erotic. Mm -hmm. It is this like intangible space where creation happens, where we are moved to create art, where we are moved to uh, decorate a space that feels like well nested in, well, well loved. It feels like curated just for us. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're describing this piece of pleasure in all things. Mm. And I, I wonder if, and like seeking pleasure in you and that relationship with yourself in all avenues and arenas, because we tend to compartmentalize sex. We mm. tend to think like that's something separate. I deal with it later. And especially because, you know, some of us in South Asian communities or other communities where it's taboo, you, you grow up with this sort of like question mark. It's a hidden room. You're not allowed to access and you access it at a certain age and you really don't understand how to connect all those pleasures. What you described about, you know, just loving yourself in the shower, just making a meal for yourself that you deserve. It doesn't have to be shared with someone. That is something I think that can be really hard to do when you've been taught that your gifts and talents should be shared with others. Um, so I find a lot of beauty in even making that connection of just pleasure in all the things for no one but yourself. Mm. I, I love, I love the way that you frame that because that's exactly how I see it. When we use the broadest definition of pleasure and don't just reserve it for the, the, the sticky, sweaty, messy acts of sex with other people, but actually expand because sex can be that can be other things too, but to include the, the warm, the hot cup of tea that you make for yourself with like a side of biscuits you know, on, yeah. a, on a quiet afternoon that like relaxing and dropping into yourself to really enjoy that is also sensuality. It is a form of like deep self-worship that is pleasurable and reminds us that like our bodies are for ourselves, they're for us to enjoy. And that, that connection back to intuition, to be able to hear what you actually want and need is something that needs to be repaired when you are healing from diet culture, when you're healing from even like, I'm thinking Brahmanism, I'm thinking of the way that purity culture teaches us to relate to pleasure. Yeah. Um, both the diet culture and rape culture really teach us that to be afraid of our pleasure, to be afraid of our hunger, whether it's our sexual or non-sexual hunger. And it teaches us, you know, if I have a taste of that Oreo, I'm going to eat the whole sleeve of Oreos, mm -hmm. but it's actually totally okay to eat the whole sleeve of Oreos. Like that's only a bad thing if you're afraid of being fat or if you're being afraid of being perceived as fat. Yeah. But it's totally okay to engage with your pleasure. That is like one of the smallest purposes of being alive and being a human. Right. Sometimes I, I mean, especially the two years, right. Um, you got to wonder like, what is the purpose of life sometimes? Like after the stuff we've been through the world. Yeah, absolutely. For real. 
And I've really been coming to the conclusion, and I do feel like sometimes depression is a really wonderful way, quote, quote, to experience these questions and come out of it with some realizations. And I wonder if it really is about just those moments. Um, What else is there? You know, people, we forget, like generations move on, people are forgotten. And I feel like Mm -hmm. ultimately what you could do with this random experience we have as humans is Mm -hmm. enjoy the pleasures, enjoy the pleasure that comes from connection with people and yourself. Um, Do do good. And that's pretty much, I feel like all you can do. That's Um, all we get. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, it's crazy how we've complicated that narrative because Mm -hmm. to your point, it does keep a certain group in control, in power, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. dominating. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, especially dominating, and I had shared with you that I would, I would be open to talking about my own experience, um, and I don't want to make this about me too much, but I'm just offering a case because I know it's difficult for people to talk about um, mm-hmm. publicly, but um, I didn't have any idea what sex was until I was 17. Um, when I was in India, you know, my whole life, my parents were always so conservative, like, lest I ever experience something like this. But go figure in my grandma's like neighborhood right next to her house. I was assaulted when I was 12 and in my twenties, you know, as I dealt with that in high school and just kind of started to grapple with the gap, the knowledge gap of what had happened, but not even knowing what it was until I was 17. Mm. Um, in my twenties, I, I started to see no surprise looking back, but that I enjoyed suddenly feeling better about myself and being a sexual person, like after, you know, breaking up with my boyfriend from college. And I used to see it as a way to have power over men. It was sort of like a way that I wanted to reclaim this power that was taken over from me. And I loved hooking up and I'm not apologetic about it. Like, I feel like people who shame that, like it's unfortunate, but I, I noticed I never really enjoyed the act though. I didn't really know what I was enjoy like I mean obviously when you're in it you're like cool this feels good but it wasn't the same as like now when I know what it's like to truly like and I'm still on a journey but to truly be there with that enjoying that pleasure the smallness the bigness of it and I just kind of used it as like a competition with myself like the body count I did like pole dancing lessons to feel powerful um but now you know like I really realized in the last few years with a partner where I feel safe I feel so you know, secure. And I feel like I can be myself. I still feel like I have delayed the trauma. I find Mm -hmm. sex sometimes very violent, even the way it happens in romantic movies where people just like push to each other and like, they just can't hold themselves back. And it's like forbidden. And uh, I think of all the women in my life who have suffered and I'm just jealous of people who can enjoy it. And, um, I've talked to other brown women who shared the same frustration of like, why don't I want or enjoy sex? And we feel really bad. We like talk about taking gummies to like ease the mind. And, Mm. you know, I'm sure I'm not. And, you know, kind of this conversation I'm talking about, I'm using me as like a fodder for, you know, I'm sure you see this Mm -hmm. more like a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. Let me know if I'm just like a really like, you know, girl, you're on your own, you're messed up, but I'm just kind of curious, like, why does this happen? Like, what if we don't like sex or we like struggle with it for most of our lives after all the weight and hype? Mm, 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 mm. Um, Well, I also just want to say that like sex isn't like the pinnacle of living for all of us and that's okay. Like for 
not not all of us are going to enjoy it the same way. Um, I really do agree with you that the way it is hyped up in the media and movies um, really frames it in this way that really benefits heteropatriarchy again. Mm-hmm. It teaches us these like really toxic romance myths. It teaches us that um, we are inadequate. We are incomplete if we're not in a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And a romantic relationship is the most important type of love that anyone will receive. If you don't have it, you are not a real adult. You are um, going to be unhappy forever. Uh, you'll be lonely and it'll be sad for you. Um, that we'll, we would do anything for love. We would be willing to die for love. Um, it feels so intense that like we don't ask for consent during a movie that it's like hot and heavy and no one has discussed what they even like but somehow (laughs) orgasm is happening in 25 seconds like it is nonsensical there's no way that sex looks like that for most people (laughs) absolutely okay I'm so relieved first of all thank you for sharing that (laughs) we don't learn to drive by watching fast and furious the same way we don't learn to have sex by watching movies or porn oh suit yourself that's how I learned but (laughs) (laughs) but no seriously you're totally right and going back to your point earlier when you make pleasure something that's accessible to you and like free um of cost to you at any age in any form then you don't have to rely on this pinnacle to your point of like now I need to be in this heteronormative narrative I found a man Mm -hmm. I can have sex and then now I can I'm allowed to feel pleasure right if if you have pleasure in every arena of your life, then the feeling of like this void, I think lessens too. And you might challenge, right? Like, do you need a person to feel it that way? Can you take your time? I Um, agree. It can be optional. And the other side of that is that it might require us many attempts to get back on that bicycle. Like after sexual trauma, a lot of us experience what some people would describe as hypersexuality. I don't like that term. I think that it's judgy because like hyper based on what, you know, you don't know my baseline and all our baselines can look different, but um, I experienced the same thing. Um, I, after sexual trauma also was like really excited, really hype to get on that bicycle and try several times because something wasn't exactly feeling right for me. And I knew that I wanted to have sex for many years. My parents were telling me that I was, I grew up as a fat kid. I was um, a fat kid who was told by my parents that if I couldn't control my body size, that I would not be marriageable. I would not be desirable to men, that it would be hard for me to be taken seriously in my career. Yeah, it like fucking sucked. And um, it would be hard for me to have a biological child. Like my parents had a really, nuanced understanding of how fat phobia would affect my life and they wanted to protect me from it albeit in a very harsh and cruel way um but when it was time for me to have sex I was like so gung-ho I was like ready to prove to them actually I think I'm really hot and I think people are really into me but that also left me being a 15 year old having sex with people who I had no business having sex with they were like adult men and they were like predatory and unkind to my child body and so what I had to learn was that like sex is not actually that scarce um people being attracted to me is not scarce 
um, this kind of attention that is coming towards me is not a rare thing, that actually I am very easy to love the good vibes that I put out into the world, the ways that I nurture and cherish relationships that are very meaningful to me is beautiful and worthy of, of someone taking the time and care to meet my needs. Absolutely. And it took me a long time to, to learn that lesson. And I think that it's okay for us to have several attempts getting back on that bike and not learning how to get ourselves to have pleasurable sex. I think for a lot of us, this is gonna require therapy. Yeah. Like if y'all are not enjoying sex, but you want to be like, try some sex therapy. I think that it, it can't hurt. Um, or I mean, I guess if you have a terrible therapist, it could hurt, but yeah. no, that's a fair point. Um, definitely know <laughs> what my action item is after we record, <laughs> but I'm, um, you know, my heart is glowing and this sort of support and, you know, wanting to give child you a hug of just, I'm so yeah. sorry that you experienced that as well. I, I know like just because we're experts on something doesn't mean that you can't have your own experiences. Um, and I, I appreciate how you are helping others um, with that empathy as well. I'm thank curious you, what you. you said. Yeah, um, what you said, there were elements to me that sounded a little um, like from others, this like violence that people tend to think as like, oh, you're being dramatic. Like words can't be violence. Um, the way I treat mm -hmm. you can't be violence unless I'm like actually doing something physically violent, which mm -hmm. is um, I think untrue. Um, mm -hmm. And so we have, especially again, like thinking of brown women, um, we tend to dismiss so much violence towards us because we're conditioned to think that it's love, that it's care, that it's just part of the culture. That's just our values how did we get here? Um, what would you say to women like that who, you know, don't realize how much they've been colonized and it's not just white supremacy colonization, also like the patriarchal colonization of our brains. Um, cause often I wonder too, it's like, yes, we can, you know, as American South Asians, we have this overlap, but if you're growing up in India, which I did for a period of time, it, you're also experiencing violence in the hands of your own men. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd love to hear what, you know, when you talk to folks, like obviously not specifics, but generally, how do you approach this type of space? I think that these are one of the ways that we are passed down generational curses. You know, things that our, our elders couldn't solve get passed down to us. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that does mean like um, whether or not we're going to draw harder boundaries than our mothers did for the violence that they put up with in their relationships and their marriages. Um, sometimes it looks like having brothers who repeat the violent patterns of our fathers and don't see consequences for that until no one wants to marry them, no one wants to date them and their sisters don't wanna have relationships with them. Mm. I'm thinking of how like a lot of the ways that we inherit generational curses also looks like you know, getting to be folks of marginalized genders who get to decide whether our lives feel fulfilled means yeah. that like we're no longer living in a world in a in a life where we have to just fight for survival. You know, like some of our parents were living in survival mode, but we actually get to think about fulfillment. We get to think about like 
do I feel healed? And that's us like getting to take time to heal things that our parents might not have had time to do or still don't want to prioritize doing. Mm -hmm. Some of the ways that we we denormalize violence is like by calling it out and standing up for ourselves. So like naming the way that you've spoken to me is inappropriate and I will not be entertaining phone calls with you if that's the way you're going to continue to speak to me. Or I've been telling you for months now that I don't feel happy in our relationship and you either dismiss me or belittle what I've said. And I think that it's time that I start taking steps back from the relationship because this is not one that's filling my cup. And I feel like I'm just filling yours. So like actually telling ourselves that we're allowed to end relationships that don't feel good to us ends cycles of violence. And it is painful, ancient work. And I think about my ancestors who also would jump with joy at the idea of how many orgasms and afternoon naps and days of rest or just time away from people who steal your peace we get to have now. Oh gosh, that is so like you, you painted this dream world, right? Where you can live in a world where you're flawed and also it's okay to draw boundaries. And in reality though, I think sometimes it can be, even if we're practicing that. So this goes out to the people who are, who are, I love how you said it. The problem that wasn't solved gets passed down. Um, it sort of reminds me of like a weird intergenerational unsolved mysteries. Um, and when you start to break though, um, I feel a lot for the, especially since this is kind of the audiences around women who are breaking those cycles, who are solving those cases, but they don't have that corporate cooperation. And when with, from their families Mm -hmm. and communities, Mm -hmm. so they tend to sit there maybe more alone, even though they're able to draw those healthy boundaries, what would you say in encouragement or support to those people? It is going to be isolating. So you got to build new community in the new place where you want to build your city, Mm -hmm. where you want to build your little town, your little village, your enclave, where your new habits, your new rituals, your, your new life is going to be safe and going to be well cared for by a whole new set of group of people. Because when we put up a boundary and when we call out a harm or a violence and ask it to not exist, the system as it once existed had to collapse around it. So that means that we're going to be witnessing like sadness, loss, grief, people's um, kickbacks, you know, the backlash, other people's anger and rage at us calling it out and us dismantling a system that does not serve us. So it is necessary for us to be able to withstand and create little like places we can retreat out into. Um, And so this also has to be something that's named like, if you are still a dependent, if you're like financially dependent or dependent on someone based on housing or for education or a, a marriage or you've got children together, like this can be much more difficult or if like your childcare is relying on people, um, it can be a lot more difficult to draw these boundaries. And it requires like so many more community supports than sometimes are created within cishet communities. Like 
marriages are really supposed to be these like silos where a man and a woman create their own right their own power structure and they don't rely on community the same way um, that we would if we were friends in college or if we were people who lived in apartments near each other like the way that the suburbs and the nuclear family really keeps us on little islands apart from each other is intentional and it's something to think about um, if you're struggling to like draw those lines in the sand with people who are harming you. So um, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that because it's so helpful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this like a note that you ended on, um, you know, Anton, my husband and I joke, like sometimes when he's like, wait, you told, you know, my, my best friend Priya, she'll, he'll be like, you told Priya <laughs> that, like we went through that. And I was like, Honestly, when we took our vows in front of people, that meant they were all in it with us. Like they owed to me to keep this marriage (laughs) happening and successful. So I see it as like, you know, to your point, it can be really, I don't like the shift. Actually, part of getting married, you know, in December and like the few months after how you, it it seemed kind of like this, like now society is going to expect me to be this person who keeps my problems private. Not that I'm, you know, like the TMI aspect, but I just mean like, it's sort of like you and them and that's it. And like, you kind of protect that. And like, you act cagey in front of people, like everything's okay. <laughs> what about when things are not, or you just want to talk about like, is this normal, you know, and like in the bedroom or just even like arguing about like putting things away in the house. Like it, it feels like it becomes more and more lonely and one person cannot be all of it, even if they're your right. person, right? Like, so I think therein lies a lot of, again, loneliness we create for people. Um, and especially if you're someone, you know, like in the women, like, you know, women experience, like you, you kind of are already meant to be secondary in a way, Mm -hmm. the way like the society is oriented. So I don't know. I just really appreciate you sharing that because it doesn't, it shouldn't change the fact that we do, we are social beings. We need communities to succeed, even if it's a unit, a union. Absolutely. One of the things we haven't touched on that I really want to is speaking of the messages that we hear growing up and being like, oh my gosh, like now I'm getting to even challenge or, you know, typically we tend to go through, especially like us South Asian kids growing up and uh, we hear these, we are not allowed to talk about these things, think about these things. And we suddenly get this extreme freedom and this expiration, yada, yada, yada. But that being said, there's no part of what I grew up with that allowed me to even think about the gender or sexual spectrum Mm -hmm. beyond heteronormative, you're a woman, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it has only for me, like lately been something that I've thought about of, I do have, I have always felt this masculinity in my energy and my like person who I am. When I think of me, I have always felt like I'm, you know, recently, like, especially last year, I was able to come out to my fiance too, of like, I think I'm attracted to women and it's okay. Like I, you're my person, but I, Mm -hmm. I know this about me now. And I feel now I can love you even more because now I feel this acceptance of who I am. Mm -hmm. He thought it was very beautiful. And he was so supportive. Um, He's like, this makes me love you more. And it just felt so freeing. Right. So like these dimensions of being who you are and But I realized like I never even when he was asking or my best friend was asking, you know, when did you kind of start? I was like, I think I always just I was I was like my Mm -hmm. therapist, even when I told her she was like, oh, I always had you down from the moment I met you as a fluid person. 
I was like, that's so crazy. Didn't you want to tell me? Because I like, didn't realize until <laughs> How I was did like, I not know. Yeah. I was like, I wish you had just told me that I could have a headset because you don't even, um, you're not allowed to even have that as a possibility in your head. How do you, um, would you address, like, I'm just using me as an example, but like for other people who are like in their households, they don't get this, right? We don't get an equal setup for success in really understanding our gender experience, our sexuality journey. Um, how would you help people to at least maybe take some agency if they're not getting it from their support immediately? Yes. I, I want to say name it for what it is. Like, I too was taught really explicitly cisness and heteronormativity as the exclusive option. I was indoctrinated into homophobia and transphobia. And I am absolutely that gay. I am that bisexual, queer, non-binary person today in my mid thirties who was homophobic in my, in my high school years, because that, that's what I knew. And it came out as this like self-hating, loathsome feeling. I think that when we are better able to tell ourselves that this is something I was taught. And if I decide that it no longer serves me, I can cast it aside and I can put something else in its place. I can teach myself something else. I can teach myself that um, this is like a perfectly acceptable, wonderful way to live. Um, that if I have parts of myself that are really expansive and imagining different gender experiences, different gender expressions for myself, as well as sexual orientations, like over a lifetime, sexuality is supposed to be fluid. The same way that it would be quite weird if we were the same size. It, as we, were, we, as we were when we were teenagers, it would be quite weird if we had the exact same preferences and likes and dislikes from like 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. So over a lifetime, tons of things are going to change and, the, and they should. Yeah. So if you are noticing things pop up for you, like, oh, you know, the more I think about it, I am kind of attracted to, to, to folks of the same gender or folks of a different gender. Or I do have other uh, gender experiences within myself that I've been curious to explore. That is fantastic. That is the whole point of being exposed to queerness is that it asks us of ourselves, what about myself have I just conformed to without choosing because I wasn't given another option. And it act, queerness begs from us for us to choose what we actually want for ourselves. Do you want this relationship structure? Do you want this gender? Do you want the sexual orientation? Do you want this life? Because if you don't, there are infinite ways you can change it so that it actually suits you. So here are a few questions from our followers. Let's go. Hookup culture can be so toxic and opposite of empowering women. What do you think? I think that anything could be empowering or disempowering to anybody. Mm. I'm 32. Oh, well, actually, could you go into that a little bit more this one? Um, <laughs> why do you think it's toxic for women? I, I, I think I reacted to this one a little bit of like, is it toxic or is it because people tell us it's toxic? I mean, hookup culture can sometimes, like when I think about apps, 
Um, and I think about if we are trying to have sex with people who have really normative, unexplored, colonized arousal maps or desire maps, they might not be thinking of us as brown folks as attractive, or they might be coming into hookups with us with like really racist ideas and like racist things to say. So that's why I think that it could expose us to people who don't have our best interests. Mm, yes, amen. Um, <laughs> now back to brief questions. I'm 32 and still unsure if I've ever had an orgasm. If I do feel something, it's like a sort of high and ends so quickly. Nothing like what everyone says. Mm. Is this normal? It can be normal. I would work with a sex therapist, someone who, even a sex coach, um, someone who has a bit of expertise to help you um, map for yourself uh, what could you could be feeling during arousal or what desire feels like to you. Um, it really, some people do not experience orgasm the same way as others. Some people go their whole lives experiencing an orgasmia. And that means like, um, you just don't experience orgasms. Yeah. I did not know that was a term. Thank you. <laughs> when I'm super excited, I discharge a little bit of fluid, uh, sorry, of liquid. Is that normal? Uh, I did not hear the beginning part of that question. I'm so sorry. When I'm super excited, I discharge a little bit of liquid. Is that normal? Yes, that is normal. Your body is getting ready to lubricate should you want to have penetrative sex or even external arousal. Thank you. We've all got this feeling of it likes, it feels like we need to be hotter or better in some way in order to claim sexuality. I think this person's getting at there's like this one way of looking and being to be allowed to be sexual. Um, but also like just literally how it's read is we've all got this in us, but sometimes it feels like we need to be hotter, better in some way to claim this sexuality. What mm. would your comment be to that? That's bullshit. That is what is taught to <laughs> us by desirability politics. Desirability politics tells us that only certain people deserve to experience sexual pleasure or joy or get to wear their dream bikini on vacation or get to go on fabulous trips. Um, it tells us to really delay our future and put off the thing that we really want until we reach this pant size or until we get married instead of saying, I don't have to wait for the future to live my life today. I feel like I was meant to talk to you in this time of my life. So I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> What's your least favorite myth about sex and why? My least favorite myth. Um, my least favorite myth. Um, this idea that sex is like life-changing. Um, when someone, when I work with someone who um, waited a long time to have sex, a long time by their definition, and they finally have it, they're like, oh, that's all it was? And I'm like, yeah, I know, babe. Oh my God. Yeah. That was exactly my reaction after. It's totally okay. Yeah. yeah. I know. It's like people really blow it up because they really want you to believe in this like virginity myth and purity culture. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you. And with the last two minutes, I'd love to ask, you know, what is something we, ha I haven't asked you that you really think is important for people to understand, like anyone who's listening about colonization, fat phobia, sex, like when you think about the work you do. Um, the best sex advice I've ever gotten is um, they already know how fat you are. So just enjoy the sex you're having. 
Um, <laughs> they like for folks who get really stuck in their head thinking about how their body looks with or without the lights on, like that person chose you, went on a date with you or came over your house. They know what your body looks like. You don't have to try to hide it. Just enjoy yourself. That's a really good point. Yeah, no <laughs> one has yet to be like, wait a second, Lahari, you have this little birthmark. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> so, love that advice. Sonali, thank you so much for such a wonderful hour. You have enlightened us so much. I can't thank it you was, enough. It has been a joy. I would be happy to come back anytime. <laughs>